Human history, like a river, will keep moving forward with moments of both calm waters and huge waves. We have before us the opportunity to forge a new world order. To bring chip productions here to the U.S. This is Multipolarity, charting the rise of the new multipolar world order. Coming up this week. Goalkeeper, rock singer, sex guru, anarcho-syndicalist, libertarian strongman, El Presidente. Javier Malay has lived the life 12-year-old boys dream of. So what happens when a true force of nature meets the iron law of Argentinian decline? Can Captain Ancap defeat the spectre of El Peronismo? The Chinese may be dumping US treasuries. We've heard the theory so often it's begun to sound like a conspiracy. But now a famous economist has graphs to back it up. Are they right? Or is this just another punnet of gay frogs? And finally, until recently, the Houthi used to be just a typical Middle Eastern rebel terror group. Kalashnikovs, pipe mortars, colourful flowing robes. But hold it there, stereotypers. The Houthi have had a fabulous makeover. As of this week, they're capturing Israeli cargo ships with helicopters, abseiling and GoPros. As the Gaza conflict stain continues to spread... Is the new aerodynamic Houthi a sign of things to come in the region? But first, Captain Ancap and the unholy dollar. The big political and economic news this week has been the election of Javier Millet, the eccentric, populist, economist and celebrity from Argentina as Argentinian president. He finished second in the first round of the presidential election, but in the second round, he resoundingly defeated his opponent, Sergio Massa, who was the economy minister in the, for the previous president, won 56% to 44, so a 12-point margin of victory, and Millet won all but three of the provinces in Argentina. Now, this comes against the background, of course, of Argentina's economic woes. As is well known, inflation is about 140% at the moment, which is kind of eye-watering. They're coming on the back of a default in 2020 and a large loan from the IMF. The Argentinian economy has not been in a good way, and they have turned to Javier Millet, who is a self professed narco-capitalist, I think, and libertarian. He has some views and some policy ideas which are quite extreme, I think it's fair to say. People will have heard of them, but things like uh, legalizing the sale of human organs, just completely abolishing large swathes of the Argentinian state. Pretty much every government ministry he could get his hands on, I think he would seek to abolish. But most of all, his most controversial policy, I think, or or the one that's created the most chatter, is to abolish the Central Bank of Argentina and rise the economy, whereby the currency of Argentina would cease being the peso and instead be the US dollar. Argentina would simply use the US dollar for that. So this, this quite kind of eccentric, extreme man, a man who has a superhero alter ego called ANCAP, standing for anarcho-capitalism. He's been seen dressed in a superhero outfit and singing. and uh, He's been elected in a resounding victory, and it's causing 
a great deal of a great deal of chatter. I think it's fair to say in uh, political and econo- economist circles. You're an economist, Philip Pilkington. What do you think of this? I think, for one, the um, Argentinians have forgotten about the economic turmoil of 2000-2001 when a similar scheme to the one being floated, actually a less extreme scheme to the one being floated by President Malay, was undertaken in the late 90s to get uh, inflation under control and um, resulted in extreme economic pain for Argentina, riots in the streets, by all accounts, a very miserable few years. I know some Argentinians who lived through it. It was unpleasant, to say the least. Far more unpleasant than anything we in the West would generally experience, even the deep recession that we saw in 2008-2009. There was problems with feeding people and stuff. Nobody starved, but it was not a nice situation, the previous Argentinian uh, default and crisis. As I said, that was based on a relatively similar policy, at least in principle. The government in the late 1990s put in place what was called a currency board, where they effectively did a very hard peg of the peso, the Argentinian peso, to the US dollar. And that succeeded in suppressing inflation, as it would, because you've completely controlled the supply of money. But it had the downside of sending the country into massive debt with the United States, debt from which it eventually had to default and uh, accept a very harsh IMF program and bailout. Um, What Malay is proposing is pretty much a similar medicine, but more extreme, because at least in the case of the currency board, you could, I won't say easily reverse it, but the process of reversing it was easy. You just unannounced the peg. Now, what happens after you unannounce the peg is absolutely brutal and horrendous. But Malay is saying that they should dollarize the economy. So they should, as you say, replace the currency with another currency. Well, that's a bit like doing a currency board, but far more extreme because once you have those dollars circulating, if they can even get to that point, we'll talk about that in a minute. Once you have all those dollars circulating, if anything really nasty happened, which I think it almost inevitably would, it's pretty hard to press the reset button. So what dollarization would do if it was successfully implemented would effectively put Argentina on the same path they were on in the late 1990s. But if it became too, I won't say if, I'll say if and when it becomes too painful for them to bear anymore, there won't be an escape hatch. They won't be able to say, okay, we've had enough drop the peg, and then go through three years of absolute extreme crisis, and then come out the other side in something resembling one piece, you'll be locked in. If they circulate dollars rather than pesos in the economy, you'll be locked in. Now, you can substitute back out the peso for the dollar, but you'll be doing so against a complete chaos. It'll be an absolute mess. Just to give some sense of the challenge of dollarizing the economy, the Argentina do have some foreign exchange reserves left, not many. They've been selling down their foreign exchange reserves since about 2019. They used to have about $60 billion in foreign exchange reserves. They now only have just just under $20 billion. So their, their exchange reserves have dropped by two-thirds in the past few years, so not an ideal place to be. But compare what they currently have, which is just over $18 billion in currency reserves, with Argentinian GDP, which is $487 billion. So uh, Argentinian GDP is about 27 times 
larger than their foreign exchange reserves. So the best way to think about that is if they introduced all of those foreign exchange reserves as dollars, assuming they're all dollars, some of them may not be, so they'll have to convert them. But let's say they get all those foreign exchange reserves and they introduce them into the economy. In order for them to facilitate current annual Argentinian GDP, each one of those dollars will have to be spent 27 times in a year. That's another way of saying that the money supply will be 127th the size of the GDP. And I would say that is inadvisable. So what will happen if they do this, I think, is that they will, you will see an enormous uptick in dollar borrowing, just as you did in the late 1990s. Banks will start borrowing in dollars, hand over foot, and the country will find itself with a giant debt pool in dollars, just as they did in 2000. So I think that's I think that's where this would go. And I think it's actually very dangerous. But the question is, can President Malay get from here to there? Yeah, I'm not sure he can, actually. I'm not altogether certain that he's going to be able to do a lot of what he would like to do. It is inevitably the case with any election anywhere in the world that the manifesto promises of the winning party come face-to-face with reality and quite often face-to-face with opposition, either direct political opposition or opposition within the country or even opposition without the country. And that causes them to be watered down or it makes them more difficult to push through. And I think that's especially going to be the case with somebody who doesn't necessarily have a huge amount of experience in politics, doesn't necessarily know a great deal. He doesn't have this intrinsic understanding of the way the levers of power in the country work. It might be more difficult for him to get things through, but there are also other barriers as well. For instance, his party, the party of which he's a member, did not win a serious amount of the Argentinian legislature For instance, there are 257 seats in the lower house of the Argentinian legislature, and Millet's party only won 38 seats, so 38 out of 257 is not a huge block that could be used to push through some of his more extreme ideas. Equally, in the Senate, there are 72 seats, and of those 72 his party only won eight. So just from purely a a kind of political point of view, it's going to be quite difficult for him to push some of this through. But in addition to that, as you quite rightly say, I'm not altogether certain that Argentina is in a great state, a great position to, for instance, dollarize the economy. Their current account has kind of ballooned out quite a bit this year. I think it's currently running something like 5% of GDP, the current account deficit, which would mean if they did dollarize an instant reduction of GDP. Uh, And in addition to that, as you and I covered several months ago on this podcast, Philip Pilkington, they've also taken out a load of swap lines with the People's Bank of China, which is the central bank of the People's Republic of China. And, you know, the Chinese were extended these swap lines to the Argentinian central bank to facilitate trade between the two countries. But those swap lines are worth $18 billion. (laughs) 
and that and that's eighteen billion dollars that essentially Argentina owes to China. Now, one of the things that Malay has said, for example, is that he, you know, he would break off all ties with Argentina and Brazil. He's very pro uh, Ukrainian, very pro Israel. He very much, you know, in foreign policy terms and in trade policy terms, he very much fits into that old-fashioned Cold War South American archetype of a very kind of anti-communist kind of strongman. That's the general archetype into which he fits. But given the trade realities of Argentina, I, I, I believe I'm right in saying that China is now Argentina's largest trade partner. Given that Argentina owes China a huge amount in these kind of swap lines that have been extended to facilitate, help facilitate that trade, that again is a is another kind of extreme policy stance of his that's going to be difficult to push through this idea that they're going to dollarize the economy, this idea that they're going to break ties with China because China is communist and that's kind of fundamentally evil. But even you know beyond that, he's also in kind of recent weeks between the first round and the second round, walked back some of his quite kind of extreme positions. For instance, on the sale of human organs, the ability of people like to sell a kidney, for example. He's you know, he's gone more in line with his vice presidential candidate, a lady who is kind of more traditional right-wing Catholic conservative. Other things like, for instance, he talked about protecting the pensions and the social security payments of, of Argentinians. He said that, in fact, that it wouldn't be fair on them to kind of remove them because they're victims, not not the culprits. But that's not very libertarian, is it? You know, protecting social security payments and protecting pensions. And 40% of Argentinians are currently living in poverty. So that immediately is a large amount. So, I, you know, I think that for all people might be reaching for the smelling salts that somebody so extreme and eccentric has been elected to what is ultimately quite a major country. I think there are signs that politically it's going to be difficult to get some of his more extreme program pledges through, but also signs that he himself is already softening his stance in several areas. I think he might pick and choose certain things. I think certainly socially, he'll be very, in Western, in the Western vernacular, in Western patois, he'll be a a real culture warrior. He'll be first over the trenches on the culture wars in insofar as they exist in Argentina, which I assume they do. Um, but I think some of his more extreme positions might not necessarily pan out in the way that he has suggested in his earlier political career and even at the beginning of his presidential campaign. He also is apparently going to war with his ministries. There's a video going around of him pointing to a sticker representing each of the ministries and ripping it off the wall and throwing it away and saying out in Spanish. Pretty hard to implement a massive program of dollarization if you are at war with your ministries. You can be libertarian all you want and say that dollarization promotes free market ideals, maybe it doesn't, but to get from here, where you have the peso, to there, where the entire country is using dollars, is going to take some pretty subtle mechanisms in your civil service and bureaucracy, and if you're at war with them, that might be quite difficult to get done. I broadly agree with what you're saying, but I'd slightly push back on one issue. 
that Malay has made enormous promises in this direction of dollarization, and it has been his core promise. Malay wasn't elected for his antics dressed up as General Ancap. He wasn't even elected to eliminate the ministries per se. He was elected to get inflation under control. My reading of it is that uh, Argentinians are just sick of the constant inflation. It's been 20 years of this, and it's just got worse and worse, and they're now pushing hyperinflation territory, and they just want it to stop. So he, I think his government will have to do something to try and bring down inflation. And my feeling is, unless he does actually get his way and dollarize the economy, his civil servants or his advisors are going to bring him a slightly watered-down version of that plan. But the fact that he's gone in with such a dramatic version of that plan means anything watered down will probably come to resemble the plan of the late 1990s, some sort of a dollar board or currency peg. And as we saw, now that won't be as potentially destructive as full dollarization, but the ramifications of it, I think, will be broadly the same as they were in the late 1990s, maybe even worse, because the economy is even more fragile now, which will we can talk about in a moment. But so my feeling is that they will actually put this in place. The other the other piece of a piece to of evidence to consider here is that since the beginning of 2022, the inflation situation has got much worse in Argentina. This probably actually partly explains the Malay election. It was running at about 50%, which is still obviously very high in early 2022. As of the latest data, which is from October, it's running at 142%. It's pretty much veering into hyperinflation territory. Now, some of that isn't actually due to any mismanagement. It's due to there's been a terrible crop failure, a drought in Argentina. And this also, I think, explains why, they're, as you said, their current account deficits got so bad. The, the, they're, they're a big, obviously, crop producer. They're a big soybean exporter to China, as you alluded to as well. And their crops have failed. And so inflation's really taken off like a rocket. So that puts more pressure on Malay to try and do something about it. Now, here's what I'm kind of here's the kind of bigger picture thing, because I tweeted about this. Because as you said, Malay is obviously eccentric libertarian on many policies, wants to basically tear up the entire government, wants to engage in these experimental economic policy measures. But he also has this very different approach to foreign policy, as you said. He's this old kind of cold warrior, right winger which is very unusual outside of Latin America. You don't really see it. But what's interesting is that if you actually think through what might happen here, if I'm correct that Malay is going to end up putting some sort of inflation control in place, and I should add to that, there are plenty of people, I'm sure, in the Argentinian treasury who go to university in America who would love to have another pop at the currency board. So I think you'll have plenty of people listening to him there. If he does that, and they get, whatever, four or five years of price stability out of it, which may happen if it's implemented properly and if the economy is stable enough to take it. And if it then collapses into the same mess as happened in 2001, what's going to happen? Whatever they do will be tied to the dollar. The crisis will end up being generated ultimately by dollar borrowing. When that crisis hits, you're going to get a wave of anti-American sentiment. It's so, so clearly visible even now. And the world has changed. The last crisis was over 20 years ago. The world has changed. Argentina's in the BRICS now, or adjacent to the BRICS, and it's close closer to Brazil, and it's talking about currency unions with Brazil, and it has these massive relations with China. What's probably going to happen is that it 
drives its car into the wall here. And then the BRICS, the Chinese, the Brazilians turn up to salvage what's left. So some people are reading Malay's victory as being a, a turning away of one, a fairly major economy, as you say, Argentina is a big economy, turning away from the BRICS. I don't think that at all. I think this could be the kind of American influence in Argentina, which has been there for a long time. I think it could be the last ride. I think it could be their last ride. And if they get this wrong, they're going to massively empower the Peronists and so on and all the people who want to really get on the BRICS train. And it could even accelerate the creation of a Latin American currency union in the, at the end of the day. Bond. Treasury bond. Well, the Wall Street Journal had an article last week at the time of recording entitled, Where Have All the Foreign Buyers Gone for US Treasury Debt? And obviously that's very striking for people who've been keeping an eye on the situation with respect to de-dollarization and so on. We've covered it on the podcast many times before. The big fear of people like us is that due to the Russian sanctions and the loss of trust in US assets, because they can be easily politicized if, if, far, if the State Department doesn't like your foreign policy, we've been watching very carefully for developments in the US treasury market. Because if countries like China stop buying US treasuries, there's going to be a big shift in the world. Well, China, over the past few months, have indeed stopped buying treasuries. They've been net sellers of treasuries since the beginning of 2023. Now, we don't want to exaggerate that as a data point. The Wall Street Journal had a graph up going back to 2013. Between 2015 and 2018, the Chinese were net sellers. Between 2019 and 2021, they were net sellers. It's a cyclical market. But given all the changes that have taken place in the world, it's still worth paying attention to. The other issue with the with this is that at the same time as foreigners are not buying treasuries, the government in the US is issuing vast amounts of treasuries because of the Biden's the Biden administration's Inflation Reduction Act massive fiscal stimulus. The US are currently borrowing to the tune of about 8% of GDP, which we've talked about on the past in the show is extremely unusual outside of a recession. They're overspending. There's no other way to put it. The economy's at full employment and they are overspending. And they have to borrow this money. To make things even worse, the Federal Reserve cannot accommodate them, or it will be very difficult for the Federal Reserve to accommodate them. Typically, if the government's spending big, the US government, say after the 2008-2009 financial crisis and recession, they start borrowing big to uh, fill the unemployment claims, fill the gap with the tax decreases they've seen. Well, the Federal Reserve will be lowering interest rates at that time. And mechanically speaking, to lower those interest rates, it starts buying US government bonds. Well, that's not the case now. Quantitative easing is gone and quantitative tightening is on the menu. That means that the Federal Reserve are, I don't know if they currently are, but they need to be on balance net sellers of treasury treasuries in order to, to suck that money back out of the system that they pumped in during QE and drive interest rates back up. So this is an extremely inopportune time for the foreign demand to dry up in the market as well. 
Now, the foreign demand has a different impact than the domestic demand. The domestic demand is really a function of central bank policy. And in order to reverse that, the Fed would have to reverse its policy. That would be a disaster for various reasons. It would call into question the Federal Reserve's independence and so on. But it is within the power of the US federal government counting the Federal Reserve as part of that. If foreign buyers truly dry up for treasuries and for US assets more generally, that is not easily reversible. And it could have major implications for the value of the dollar and for the capacity of the United States to run the massive trade deficits that it's been running since the 1970s. So I think headlines like this, I'm not saying they put us on death watch. I'm not saying they put us on dollar death watch, but they certainly suggest, they suggest that there, there, that there are trends emerging that very much so fit with the dollar death watch narrative. Now, some people like Brad Setzer have, have pushed back on this and they've said it's not actually happening. I've looked into that. We can discuss it in a moment. But I would just say to listeners who are interested in this, pay attention. Continue to pay attention to these headlines as they come out. They may end up being nothing. It may just be a fluctuation, but it certainly fits with the narrative. Well, the big story within this, I think, is that China has significantly reduced its its holdings of US treasuries over the last 10 years and especially over the last couple of years. My kind of big issue with that is that the first thing I think about when I when I hear that China has reduced its holding of US treasuries is well where is its current account surplus going? Because in the same way that a current account or in the same way that a trade deficit deficit must be funded i.e. for the U.S. to run the huge trade deficit it runs every single year, it must raise money. It must kind of lend money to be able to fund that. It's the same with Britain. We run a, we have a chronic and large trade deficit, and the only way that can exist, literally the only way it can exist, is foreign borrowing of some sort, right? In some way, not necessarily through the sovereign debt market, but in some way, it's kind of foreign money coming into the country. And it's exactly the same with the US, but the reverse is 100% true of China. So for China to be able to run such huge trade surpluses year after year, then money must go out of the country to abroad, like abroad from China. Now, traditionally, it's done that by building up, or certainly since the late 90s, certainly since the Asian financial crisis in the late 90s, all of the Asian countries decided that from now on they were going to run big trade surpluses and use that money to build huge piles of central bank reserves so that they were never in such a position again. And China has been the kind of, I'm not sure if exemplar is the right word, but certainly China has done it and it, it, it's built up trillions and trillions of dollars worth of reserves. And a lot of those were traditionally held in US treasuries, i.e. US sovereign debt, like the bonds that the government sells to fund its deficit. So when people tell me it's reducing that, at the same time that its trade deficit is not reducing, well, the first question I ask is, where's the money going? They're not buying kind of euro-denominated debt. They're not buying Japanese debt. They're not buying British debt. So where is all that money going? Now, I know that they have, over the last 12 months, bought a lot of gold, for example. Actually, they've bought gold for 12 consecutive months. In the last Since last November, 
they've bought about 266 tons of gold, which is a lot. That's 6% of total demand for gold. So when you tot up all the demand from central banks, all of the demand for jewelry and industry, all the kind of demand from ETFs and investment funds, all of that, the Chinese central bank has accounted for fully 6% of all that. So that's quite a lot, but it's nowhere near enough to, to send all of that money that's coming through their trade surplus. So my only guess, or what I've heard, I'm not guessing, I'm not so smart as to guess, but what I've heard and what Mr. Setzer, who you mentioned earlier on, has suggested is where this money is going is actually still into U.S. debt. But insofar as it's U.S. government debt, U.S. sovereign bonds, like U.S. treasuries, it goes in, 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 into these offshore accounts, you, like accounts through like Euroclear in Brussels, for example. And then that's not necessarily held on the balance sheet of the People's Bank of China, the, the Chinese Central Bank. The other place I've heard they're going is U.S. agency debt. So it's still U.S. sovereign debt, but it's not treasury bonds. It's debt to other agencies within the U.S., essentially. But you're not as sure about that as me, right, Philip Pilkin? No, we'll get into Setzer's dick in a minute. But the one thing I'd say about the trade deficit is it has shrank quite dramatically. In 2018, the U.S.-China trade deficit was about 418. Last year, in 2022, it was about $382 billion, so it had already fallen. And this year, although we don't have the final numbers, obviously, I think we're looking at about $290, $300 billion. So the trade deficit is falling. And if China is switching out of U.S. assets, that should happen. That is logically what should happen. If the China, if China says we're not willing to fund this trade deficit, the, the trade deficit will close. And it, it, it should close automatically because it's a almost like a law of gravity. Setzer's piece, which is, Setzer, it, it just for those who don't know, Brad Setzer is an economist at the Council of Foreign Relations. So I think it's very much so worth taking what he says seriously because I would imagine that is what is being talked about at the U.S. Treasury in terms of their debt management. And I'd also say it's probably what's being talked about at the Federal Reserve. I think there are a lot of problems with what Setzer is doing, actually. Um, the, the, the main issue is what you referred to there, offshore holdings and Euroclear. The agency debt is a bit of a canard, in my opinion. Agency debt is not U.S. Treasury debt. It's not a reserve holding. So you, you have different types of reserve holdings. You have pure reserve holdings. Those are foreign exchange reserves. In China, that would be holdings of U.S. dollars at a, a central bank account, a, a People's Bank of China central bank account at the Federal Reserve. Okay, that's a pure reserve. It's dollars. It's simple dollars. Another type of kind of quasi reserve is holding the the debt of that uh, country, the U.S. the the government debt, because in reality, there's not that much of a difference between cash and government debt. Both of them are paper that are issued by the government. One pays an interest rate, the other doesn't, right? So they're relatively substitutable. So people often, economists often think, and not just economists, finance people too, they often think, well, holding another country's treasury bonds is kind of like holding reserves. And I tend to agree with that. 
Agency debt isn't any of those things. Agency debt is like Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac and these these mortgage issuance companies. And yes, of course, to some extent, these mortgage issuance companies are backstopped. But if you know anything about portfolio management and finance, no one worth their salt would put agency debt in 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 the same basket as the the cash and the bonds. It may be considered fixed income. Okay, it's not equities. I get that, but it would certainly not go into that basket. The same would be true, for example, of state government debt, munis, municipal bonds in the US. So I don't know why Setzer's throwing that in there. The, and I looked at the data and it looks to me like it's a, It's sometimes they hold agencies, sometimes they don't. It's it, probably contingent on relative interest rates. It's a portfolio decision. So that's a little bit of a canard. And anyway, it doesn't make that much of a difference to his overall argument. His real argument is about these offshore holdings. And this should be taken seriously. Because basically what I understand is happening here is that the Chinese can pay an intermediary in Brussels. Setzer's theory is that it's Euroclear in Brussels. It's a company. And you can pay them to effectively hold this, this debt for you. Now, why would you do that? We can come to that in a moment because it's interesting in and of itself. The issue is that you can't tell who's holding this stuff. All that the Euroclear accounts show up is in what are called custodial holdings in Belgium, right? And so you have data for custodial holdings in Belgium, but you have absolutely no idea who those who those custodial who those custodial holdings are being held on behalf of. They could be held uh, on behalf of any country in the world. They could be held on behalf of private of government individuals, and you can't tell from the data. So what Setzer tries to do is he tries to fit it. He tries to, he tries to explain discrepancies in Chinese bond holdings with reference to this data. And in doing so, he seems to me to make completely arbitrary assumptions. I only read his article, his recent article, on, on the Chinese uh, US Treasury situation. Maybe he's explained his methodology better elsewhere, but I suspect he cannot explain this methodology because I don't think it's reasonable. What he says is he says that the Chinese typically hold 40% of their overall reserves in US treasuries. Now, why does he think that? I have absolutely no idea. He has set up this rule for himself where he said, well, the Chinese will typically hold 40% of their reserves in US treasuries. He doesn't justify it anywhere in his recent article. And I don't know how you could justify that because in reality, you have no idea how much treasuries they hold. It could be 40%. It could be less than 40%. You don't know. You don't know unless you see their, their holdings relative to the reserves and you can't see that. Or at least what we can see isn't good enough for Setzer. So he tries to come up with another explanation. What he then does is he puts a little graph up which shows 40%, okay? So you can imagine 40% of the reserves, what that would look like. And then he compares the actual Chinese government debt that we know China holds because it's recorded. That's the, the one that's fallen. It's fallen by about 40% from its peak. And that obviously doesn't line up with his 40% rule or theory. And then he tests the Belgian data and lo and behold, it looks like it. Well, anyone who's ever fit a model before, and this is a primitive model, it must be said, this isn't particularly sophisticated, knows that, to quote the bard, there are more things in heaven and earth, Horatio, than what are dreamed of in your philosophy. If you've ever fit even a sophisticated model, 
you'll often find that when you when the data comes in, it doesn't match. And that's why you have to be careful with models. When you're doing something like this, it's a bit like going and lying down in the grass and saying that cloud looks like a smiley face. Just because it looks like a smiley face doesn't mean it's a smiley face. And I think that's basically what Sets has done here. He set this 40% rule up in his head, which I can't see. He doesn't justify it, at least in that piece. Maybe he justifies it elsewhere. But even if he does, it's very suspect, because how would you know that? And then he says, well, it doesn't really fit the data. But when I add in these Belgian, these Belgian custodial holdings, it fits. Great. Okay. I don't know what you've just told yourself there. But the one thing I'd highlight, right? I don't I'm I don't think that is is convincing work. I really don't. And and if that is what the US government are relying on, I'd be worried. But and I don't want to bash Setzer here. Like he's done it properly, he's done the accounting properly. He's just the theory is just it's a bit floppy. But the one thing I'd highlight is that in China they are talking about dumping the treasuries. So an economist, a very prominent economist in China called Yu Yongding who used to work for the People's Bank of China. He's a government advisor. He speaks in Chinese Communist Party publications, which usually means that they're quasi-endorsing it or saying this guy's views are worth taking seriously. And he refers to the Chinese holdings of U.S. treasuries as, quote, grotesque misallocation of resources. And he's called on the PBOC to, quote, dump U.S. debt to boost domestic growth. When you have that being talked about in the country and you have treasuries winding down, I think the writing's on the wall. The most likely explanation is the Chinese are trying to offload these treasuries and coming up with this overfitted model, which is based, as far as I can tell, on circular logic. 40% rule must be hit because I say the 40% rule must be hit. I just don't think that's convincing. You're listening to the 48th episode of Multipolarity. We'd like to thank you all for supporting us on this journey with your positive feedback, messages, and reviews. You'll have noticed, though, that Multipolarity doesn't carry the adverts you often hear on podcasts for mattresses and questionable male grooming devices and sports gambling websites. Instead, Multipolarity is entirely listener-supported. We'd like to ask you to consider subscribing to Multipolarity through Patreon. It's only $5, pounds, or euros per month. And in exchange for that, you join an exclusive club, which receives one special episode every single month that has a deep dive on a specific issue or topic. You can cancel at any time, but given it's only the cost of a pint of beer or a cup of coffee at a one of those coffee house franchises, we get very few cancellations because it's excellent value for money. So do look us up on Patreon at Multipolarity the Podcast and consider subscribing and supporting our journey as we chart the rise of the multipolar world order. A Houthi bell tolls. <laughs> That's really good. Okay, I'll do the last one again. For Houthi bell tolls. So in the last few weeks of multipolarity, Philip, you and I, and also 
friend of the show, Malcolm Cheyune, otherwise known as Tinksorg, have discussed, the three of us, but also sometimes you and I, the Israel-Palestinian conflict quite regularly. We've covered both the regional situation and what it means more broadly in a geopolitical sense. And actually, we've been receiving some excellent feedback from that. A lot of people have very much enjoyed it. They feel that we're covering things that really are not being talked about more broadly. We've had a lot of new listeners and subscribers because of that. And I think it would be remiss if we didn't continue doing this on a fairly regular basis, because I think this is a very complicated conflict. It's something that really fires people up. People get very emotional and very tribal about it. But I think it's it's important to to look at facts, as I said, both in terms of the narrow conflict itself, the implications to the broader Middle East and North African region, and also its geopolitical implications as well. So, Philip, you've been following one or two issues in the last few days, which, again, I don't think are being covered properly. So why don't you run down those? Yeah, the first one on the radar this week, and as you say, I expect uh, week to week we'll have a couple of stories that we think aren't being covered properly. The one this week, or one of them this week, was the the ship seized by the Houthis, the rebels in Yemen. And if anyone's seen this story, they've probably seen the fairly crazy video of the Houthis coming over in a in a helicopter and kind of descending down like Navy SEALs or something. It was very surprising for me. My, in my mind, Houthis were, as a friend of the show, Malcolm Kayuna, usually says, guys with rusty, rusty AK-47s hiding, hiding behind bushes. Well, the Houthis that came down on top of this this car carrier, it turned out to be a big ship, were not guys with rusty AK-47s. They seemed to know what they were doing. The response to this was, okay, so first of all, the Houthis said, basically, any ship in the Red Sea that's Israeli-affiliated, we are going to seize, attack, whatever, right? And that's pretty much the plan, that, that the idea here is obviously to harass Israeli-affiliated vessels. The response was quite interesting to this. One of the Israeli Defense Force accounts on Twitter after it happened said that unconformed reports that Houthi rebels have taken over a cargo ship partly owned by an Israeli company. But a few minutes later, they said that the hijack- they said that they confirmed basically that it was hijacked, and they said this is not an Israeli ship. And since then, there's been this back and forth about whether it's an Israeli ship or not. Now, best that I can tell, the ship is owned by a company called Ray Car Carriers, which itself is owned by an Israeli billionaire or a millionaire, whatever, called Abraham Unger. And it's operated by a Japanese com- company. So the the crew apparently doesn't have any Israelis on it. That's what the reports suggest. And it's probably a multinational crew or mainly Japanese or something like that. But the the way that it's been covered, this the fact that it's descended into is this an Israeli ship, isn't it, is, is interesting in and of itself because the fact that, that ships are getting seized in the Red Sea is surely more interesting than what specific flag the ship is flying. And given the fact that it is owned by, or it's at least Israeli-affiliated, it does appear that the Houthis are going to try their best, they may not be able, we'll see, to harass and stop Israeli ships 
in the Red Sea. That seems like kind of a big deal. If if you're an Israeli affiliated ship now, driving sailing down with cars or with cargo or whatever, you're going to be very reticent to do it. Your insurer isn't going to going to particularly want to give you a good rate on the policy. Bibi Netanyahu, the Israeli Prime Minister, came out and uh, blamed the attack on Iran. Now, the Houthis are Iranian-backed, but I don't know if he has evidence of that, but fair enough. But the real thing that he said is it creates international implications regarding the security of global shipping lanes. I think that is spot on, because we've talked many times on the show, and I'm interested in your input because you're kind of the expert on this, but America's power projection is supposedly to, to guard, safeguard global shipping lanes. Well, I mean, I would read this whether the Israeli whether the ship has an Israeli flag or a Japanese flag or whatever, this is a direct challenge to that by the Houthis. I'd read it as because they're saying, look, we're going to interfere with those global shipping lanes that you're supposed to be guaranteeing. So I think it's I think it's a really interesting story. I think the coverage of it shows more desperate attempts not to escalate the situation. Again, we're not critical of that. Not this show. I don't want a war in the Middle East. I don't think anybody does. But it is still these kind of desperate attempts to kind of put the dumpster's on fire and you're kind of trying to force the lid onto it and make sure that nobody sees it. It really feels that way. Yeah, this is seems to me a fairly significant escalation insofar as it gives an idea of the kind of disruption that we could expect if this does indeed spiral out of control and you get a full war between various states, not just some of the non-state actors that are currently involved in war or currently attacking US and Israeli military assets. And if anybody's interested in learning more about that, they should listen to last week's show. But if you then got state actors involved, Iran, perhaps Egypt, that Syria, then know that the seizure of a cargo ship in the Red Sea is uh, just a little amuse-bouche for the sort of economic disruption that you might imagine seeing. For instance, everybody will remember when that enormous cargo ship ran aground in the Suez Canal and the pretty horrendous logistics bottleneck that caused that's exactly the sort of thing that you could imagine for almost as long as the, any such war went along. And indeed, you're right in saying that one of the primary purposes of the US Navy and one of the things that it's done in theory is keep the key shipping lanes open. And like the British Empire before it, and like the Royal Navy, the British Empire's Royal Navy before it, it's done that mainly by being able to project power into the shipping lanes and specifically to the maritime choke points, the maritime bottlenecks, because there are these narrow passages around the world, which are a huge number of international cargo travels. The English Channel would be one, busiest shipping lane in the world. The Strait of Gibraltar would be one. The Suez Canal and Red Sea would be one. The Bosphorus would be one. The famously the Malacca Straits through past Singapore would be another. The Panama Canal would be another. Just off the top of my head, I think they're about the main ones. And they are, you know, absolutely crucial for keeping the world economy growing. They're they're essentially like the arteries of the world economy, uh, because a huge amount of global trade goes by sea. 
And if you start having, you know, we remember off the Horn of Africa five or 10 years ago before shipping companies started to get their act together, the piracy in that area of the world was causing one or two issues, but it wasn't creating kind of global economic issues. But this conflict takes place very close to the Suez Canal and very close to the, right on top of the Red Sea. So if there was any disruption in that area, then it could really cause very serious economic, could have very serious economic consequences indeed. It's the same with the Strait of Hormuz, which was between Iran and, and Saudi Arabia and the UAE. The phenomenal amount of global oil goes through that strait, and that's, that's another maritime choke point. The interesting thing is that we've criticized um, Peter Zahan and some of his theories and ideas. Peter Zahan, of course, the Strat 4 alum and now a kind of independent geostrategist and almost a cult figure, I think, on some parts of the internet. We've criticized some of his ideas before, but one of his ideas was that the United States is becoming more insular. It's moving away from global trade. And as soon as the US Navy leaves the global oceans, then piracy and the ability of container ships and cargo ships and oil ships to move freely through the world's oceans, and especially these key maritime bottlenecks, will in fact recede and that that will cause global trade to collapse. And we've often mocked that before, but here the US Navy seems unwilling to intervene. It seems unwilling at present to put some of its naval assets off the coast of Yemen to prevent the Houthis from doing this again. And already we have a ship that's been impounded because of a a local disagreement. I know that's kind of downplaying the scale of this conflict, but that's ultimately what it is. So, yeah, I think this does have ramifications. It also, you know, opens up questions like, why is the U.S. Navy not intervening? I think it's another big sign that the U.S. absolutely does not want this to escalate to the extent where it has to start attacking the Yemen, attacking Iraq, attacking Iran, heaven forbid, and in doing so, suffers return fire and gets itself embroiled in another Middle Eastern war. And I think the US administration has essentially said, decided among itself, that it's just going to take its medicine. It's just going to see ships impounded. It's just going to have its bases in Syria and Iraq attacked with missiles constantly. And it's just going to take that medicine as long as it can get to the other end of this conflict without being embroiled in a broader Middle East war. Well, that leads logically to how long is this conflict going to last? I think you you say that you've been keeping an eye on how the Israelis are doing in Gaza and elsewhere. Yeah, it's, it, it's pretty difficult. I get the impression that the Israelis, for instance, seem, seem to have much tighter information security than we're used to in the conflict that's happening on the north of the Black Sea at the moment. So it's difficult to get kind of official information and official maps and all that kind of thing. But from what I can gather, the Israelis have actually made pretty good progress. They have taken losses. We've all seen videos of Hamas fighters kind of attacking Israeli armor. We've seen 
I don't want to say significant losses because that makes it sound like big, but significant enough to kind of count. The Israelis have definitely taken losses in armor and person. One would assume they're full personnel as well. But at the same time, they're making progress and they haven't been bogged down in any particular location. And I think in these kind of this kind of urban warfare, maintaining momentum is kind of extremely important. So at first you saw them going down taking the kind of like the non-urban area to the north of Gaza City and then moving down a narrow strip right on the coast, right on the beach to the west of Gaza City. Simultaneously, you had them cutting off Gaza City from the from the south, striking east to west toward the ocean. They've now essentially surrounded the whole city and they're moving into the city. And as far as I can tell... They've actually made pretty good progress and they're now in the kind of like the central businessy area of Gaza City. Now, going back over some of the more recent battles involving cities in urban, urban conflicts, if you look, it took the US Marine Corps about seven weeks to take Fallujah. Seven weeks. And the Marine Corps had everything in its favor. It had artillery. It really shaped the battlefield in Fallujah quite well. You know, it had a huge, huge manpower advantage. And it took about seven weeks to take Fallujah. The Russians took about 11 or 12 weeks to take Mariupol in Ukraine. But a fair old chunk of those 11 weeks was just the final siege of Azovstal, which is fairly unique because although it was kind of just a huge kind of steel and iron mill. Uh, it was designed in the Cold War, and I believe it had like nuclear bunkers underneath it. And then, uh, and it was an absolutely enormous facility. When you saw videos of this, it was like a, a, a steel mill that looked as if it covered like a hundred blocks of a uh, hundred blocks of urban territory. It was massive. And as I say, it had all kinds of bunkers and, and catacombs underneath the thing. And that took about 11 weeks. So you know, I look at Israel's progress at the moment, and I imagine that if they keep going in the way that they're going, and they don't find any new resistance, or Hamas hasn't kind of been baiting them in at all, which I, I don't see any sign of at the moment, I should imagine that this, it, it, I can imagine by the early part of the new year, the first week of January, or maybe even a bit before that, I, I suspect that this part of the operation will be coming to a close. And my suspicion is that the US, the, you know, the, the indication that I get from the US at the moment is that they are absolutely desperate. They're squirming to call this to an end. For some of the reasons that I spoke about before with regard to the, the potential to escalate into a, 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 a broader regional conflict, they're, they're already really having a lot of difficulty with non-state actors, the, the, you know, the various militias who are either connected to the state but at arm's length or are truly independent through the region. And they're already kind of escalating. And, and I get the impression the US really doesn't want that to go farther. But in addition to that, it's also causing, as, as again, as we've discussed on previous episodes of the podcast, people should really listen, it's causing domestic political issues as well because the left in the United States is increasingly taking a European view in terms of being pro-Palestinian, and that's a that that's a real that's a real break from the way that things used to be in the past. And I think coming into an election year, Biden doesn't want his, his base 
demoralized, angry, frustrated with his policies. So I do think the US want to call this close this. So I think given the progress at the moment, potentially by the middle of January, the first phase at least of Israeli operations would be finished. But like all wars, starting them is much easier than finishing them. What if Hamas is still firing missiles into Israel? What if other groups in the region like Hezbollah say, no, that's not good enough. You've, you've gone into Gaza and demolished it. You've killed X 10,000 number of Palestinians. We're not going to stop or forgive you from this. Uh, for this. What if Israel decides that it hasn't lobotomized Hamas or it hasn't cut down Hamas to the extent it wants and it's going to have to prune some more by pushing even farther south? How do you then administer the ruins of Gaza City. Who's going to do that? What's going to happen to all of the the hundreds of thousands of refugees who have been forced south? All of these are big questions and they're going to have to be dealt with next year, even if Israel, after Gaza City, either of its own accord or through pressure abroad from the US and perhaps even Europe, calls a halt to its operation. Yeah, like you, I found it very difficult to follow this. Seems to be a bit of an information blackout. You just have videos kind of popping out of ever. I just bookmarked that with a couple of observations. First of all, there's supposed to be 30 or 40,000 Hamas fighters in Israel. My understanding is they're hiding down tunnels. I think that calls into question potentially how much movement on the over on the surface matters, but I we don't know, frankly. I would say if they have killed, their stated goal is to wipe out Hamas. Presumably that means kill most of the fighters. If they'd killed a lot of them, I thought we'd have seen video by now. Obviously there's a lot of video coming out from the other side about civilians being killed and buildings being destroyed and so on. Why wouldn't the IDF put out video of mass casualties of Hamas fighters? I don't know. Maybe there is some floating around. I haven't seen that much. The other thing I'd just highlight quickly, I think it ties into what you said there at the end, is is the situation with Hezbollah. Hezbollah have stated they have been escalating. I, we considered covering it on the show this week, but there was other things going on. Hezbollah have been escalating, but they've stated quite specifically that they're not going to really climb up the escalatory ladder unless they feel like Hamas are under threat, which I think raises the question that if Israel end up do end up being successful in the Gaza Strip, According to what they've said, anyway, Hezbollah have said they're going to kick off a war in the north. I did see that there was an unconfirmed report in the Wall Street Journal, so I would definitely say take it with a grain of salt. But the con- the report said that a uh, hundred thousand Israeli troops were on the northern border preparing the defenses for Lebanon. Again, unconfirmed by the IDF, and take it with a grain of salt. But that is currently the messaging. So hold your horses. We are fresh from a huge victory.